A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored in memory of Rabbi Yitzchak ibn Walid, by his descendants, the Abexis family, and by Machon Magen Avot, in honor of the publication of its new book, Magen Avot Daily Halacha, published by Mosaica Press. It is presented as a daily infusion of halacha in order of the Shulchan Aruch, focusing on the Sephardic Psak Halacha, particularly through the lens of the Moroccan Paiskim. You can check it out on Amazon, and I will post a link uh, in the podcast uh, text, or you can go straight to Mosaica Press's website and see it there. And uh, I'll, I'll, appropri- I'll uh, post any appropriate links. You can also check it out, Morris Farm on Moroccan Halacha and Customs on the website MoroccanHalacha.com, which I highly recommend because in general, and I've seen this, um, I've gained more interest in this actually since I was uh, privileged to lead a tour to Morocco recently, a couple of months ago, and uh, there's been a resurgence in the interest in the history of Moroccan Jewry and the unique customs and culture of Moroccan Jewry and uh, the great, the greatest uh, manifestation of that is it's the, uh, the halacha and its development, and it has been quite neglected and somewhat uh, unknown for even within the Sephardic world, uh, with the dominance of the Iraqi paiskim and especially with the trend in recent generations led by Ravadi Yosef and others to unify uh, Sephardic halacha. So the uniqueness of Moroccan Jewry and its a uh, halachic customs and stuff like that is seeing a resurgence now. There's a renewed interest in it, um, somewhat of even a renaissance. Um, and Morocco was blessed with many great Torah giants, um, but their Sfarim, uh, for the most part, were not well-known or easily accessible, especially in English. So Magena Vote Moroccan Daily Halacha is filling uh, this this void and uh, with a focus on Sephardic Psak Halacha, but particularly through uh, Moroccan and Mosaica Press uh, has partnered with uh, Machon Magena Vote, and uh, they're doing wonderful work. So, highly recommended. I, I've checked out and used them as resources, and very, very great stuff. Um, and that's what we're going to focus on today: is Rabbi Yitzhak Ibn Walid and his place in the history of Moroccan Jewry, and his uh, literary accomplishments through his farm, and and uh, in, in general at that time. Before I get to that, so I just had a lot of great feedback on the recent uh, Lumja. Uh, we had two parts on the Lumja Yeshiva 
in, Pol- in Poland and in Petach Tikva, and I got a really a lar- larger than average amount of, uh, of feedback. So I just wanted to um, uh, read a few of the more interesting ones. Um, here's one. In your recent podcast on Lumja, you made some derogatory comments relating to Israeli bureaucracy. It appears to me that you have not had any interaction recently with the IRS or the U.S. Embassy or the many aspects of U.S. bureaucracy, uh, like such as renewing a U.S. passport. So that's, um, that's, that's funny, I guess. I definitely do not have any experience with U.S. bureaucracy, but if they're catching up to the... Uh, to the annoyingness of, uh, of Israeli bureaucracy. It doesn't mean that one should be less critical of Israeli bureaucracy. It only means we should also be critical of U.S. bureaucracy so we can be derogatory about both. Um, here's the next, um, the next uh, letter. I found it ironic how you kept on referring to the fact that in Petach Tikva as being part of the new Yishuv and how this was the first Litvish Yeshiva as part of the new Yishuv, which of course it was. The reason it's ironic is because, as you know, and many people do not, Petach Tikva was actually founded as part of the old Yishuv. And, of course, that's correct. In 1878, it was founded by members of the Yerushalayim old Yishuv, but um, it was founded uh, to be, uh, you know, eventually to be uh, the new Yishuv, and that's how it was seen, and even by its uh, founders. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it, The truth is, the history of Petach Tikva is so interesting, and the new Yishuv, in general, that perhaps one day we'll uh, speak about it, have an episode on it. But it's it's it also the reason one of the reasons is also a good valid point that this letter writer is is raising is because it it questions the very terms old and new, which are loaded terms, and I think I've addressed it in the past in other episodes. Um, here's another letter. Um, I have heard many Yerushalmi uh, uh, Jews refer to Petach Tikva as Pesach Tikva. Remember that while it was a city which was clearly a symbol of the new Yishuv. It was founded by Yerushalmis, and they still have, and they still have in their lingo uh, uh, to refer, refer, still refer to it in a certain way as Pesach Tikva. In Pesach Tikva, there is a Yeshiva called Ar Yisrael. The Yeshiva Katana was once a great feeder to the, to the Yeshiva of Panovich, um, even though it was in Hebrew, because Reb Shmuel Rezovsky's brother, Reb Yosef Rezovsky, was the top Magid Shir there in Ar Yisrael, and he would send his students to the Panavish Yeshiva. They have never lost their luster, and they later added a Yeshiva Gedayla, which is a very prominent one today. So when one mentions Petach Tikva, maybe one should mention uh, Ar Yisrael, especially since for about 20 years the Yeshiva Ar Yisrael was located in the old Lamja Petach Tikva building. And here's a final one. I believe that immediately when the Panavish Yeshiva opened, it was right away a competition with Lamja Petach Tikva. I believe this is why Rav Shach was hired as a Magid Shir in Lamja Petach Tikva to draw back the Talmidim who were going to the newly opened Panavish. Okay, interesting, fascinating. There's a lot to say about Lamja, but we're going to go way to the opposite side of the world, to Morocco. And uh, before we go to Morocco, so let's take one last stop in Israel. And um, in the Harnof neighborhood, which many people are familiar with, many of our listeners, so there's a minion factory called Imre Sheffer in the corner of uh, Scholzen and uh, Katznell and Bogan. And and right next door, that's a very busy place. It's very well known. It's very prominent. People are always davening there. But it's one less notices a. Uh, but a very important shul is right near 
uh, right, a very important Beit Knesset. I don't know, we would call it Ashkenazim would call it a shul. And uh, right next door. And it's called Toldot Yitzchak. And it's named for the subject of today's uh, talk, Rav Yitzchak Ibn Walid. And it's run by a fascinating individual named Rav Shlomo Dayan, who's more than anyone else uh, keeping the memory of, of Rav Yitzchak Ibn Walid uh, alive. He's known as Rabbi Yitzchak Ibn Walid, or Walid, or Jwalid. It depends how you pronounce it in Arabic and the local dialects. Um, so, um, Rabbi Shlomo Dayan, who runs this institution, and through his writings and his accomplishments, he has a book, Ushma Yasef. Rabbi Shlomo Dayan, excuse me, Rabbi Shlomo Dayan, uh, he, he himself grew up in Tetuan, in, in Morocco, where Rabbi Yitzchak Ibn Walid uh, came from. And he immigrated to Israel in the 1960s, and he has uh, the unique distinction of being a rabbi and a politician. He was one of the original Knesset members for the Shas party for close to four years in the late 80s, early 90s. And in addition to being a practicing rabbi and a Talmud Chacham and active in the political sphere for decades, he is also a premier researcher of Moroccan Jewry. And Rav uh, Dayan has written and published extensively on the subject, and especially on this particular individual, Rav Yitzchak Ibn Walid. He's written up biographical information, all kinds of other things. So um, he, he serves as a great resource uh, for this as well. And this brings us to the city of Tetuan in Morocco. And in general, that's an area known as Spanish Morocco. There's uh, different aspects of Morocco, and I addressed it a little bit when I had a recent episode on Moroccan Jewry. Um, that there's the, the Berber Morocco, there's the Arab Morocco, there's French Morocco in colonial era, and there's Spanish Morocco. Um, and we go back to the Alhambra Decree and the Spanish diaspora. In 1492, all non-Catholics are expelled from the Iberian, for, from Spain, and late, several years later from the entire Iber, Iberian Peninsula, as as uh, King Alfonso in Portugal um he didn't make an expulsion decree, he made everyone Catholic, so he like made, did a mass conversion and whatever, a lot of people left. It's whatever, that's a different story. What exactly was the decree in Spain and what exactly it was in, in Portugal? And um, and this uh, the Spanish diaspora, the Jewish Spanish diaspora goes all over the world, wherever they, they can go. Nearby is Morocco, and many of them come and settle in Morocco. So there's you know the Spanish exiles are they're from Spain, they're very confident and comfortable in their customs and in their Jewish way of life, and they're somewhat elitist in their, in their, uh, in their Judaism and in their culture. This is, you know, they have a very strong history, a strong tradition, strong rabbinical leaders, uh, wealth, um, you know, financial connections, and all that. And uh, they bring with them the customs and language and culture, and they have a very big impact on their host communities wherever Spanish Jews settled, including in Morocco. And they bring with them uh, a better economy and and cosmopolitanism and and international connections and banking and finance and the Andalusian customs and culture, the Spanish, uh, the customs of Sephardic Jewry, of Spanish Jewry. So the Jewish community of Tetuan is founded in that context. It's part of the area that's known as Spanish Morocco, nearby where they came over from the Iberian Peninsula, and it was known as the Yerushalayim of Morocco. We know that there's many cities around the world that were known as the Yerushalayim of 
right, uh, of, of this place, of that place. Uh, you know, the Saloniki was the Yerushalayim of the Balkans, and Vilna was the Yerushalayim of, of Lithuania, and every place has their own Yerushalayim. Um, so the uh, so the Yerushalayim of Morocco was Tetuan for many years, and it was an important and prestigious community from the time of the expulsion of Spanish Jewry until the mid-20th century. Uh, Muslims and Jews, who were both expelled together by the Alhambra decree as non-Catholics, and they they uh, they leave the Iberian uh, Peninsula. They founded the city. Uh, the Jews spoke the language of Chakitia, which is a dialect of Jewish Spanish of Ladino, uh, uh, which is also mixed with Arabic. It's a sp- very specific dialect for that area, and it was under Moroccan control until 1912 when it came under direct Spanish control. And ironically, when it came under direct... These people, 350 years before, had left, been expelled from Spain, and now when it fell under Spanish control, it reached its golden age. It was much better economic improvement, and the Jews prospered, so it's a bit of an irony. And the community falls into decline in 1956 when the city of Tetuan in that area reverted back to Moroccan uh, after Moroccan independence, it reverts back to Moroccan uh, rule and control and many Jews moved to cities uh, other cities in in the uh, Moroccan area which still remained under Spanish control. So they enjoyed an economic success and was achieved as the city became a center of international commerce uh, at that time in the 16th and 17th century for the Ottoman Empire in Italy uh, Gibraltar was a very close connection to the Jewish community of Tetuan and continued in, in Spain also. The economic connections to, to the peninsula uh, continued. Um, there was over the history, the community had compl- a complicated relationship with the local Muslim, Muslim rulers uh, because of the Jews' uh, Dimi status. So they had special taxes and there was even occasional pogroms and sometimes real violence, uh, real uh, murder and violence over the centuries. There were instances of that as well. In 1808, there was a general expulsion of Jews from the city, and when they were allowed to return, they were secluded in a melah, a Jewish quarter, like in other cities, other Moroccan Jewish cities. That was very common in the 19th century, and even earlier in certain places. Um, so restrictions were applied in dress, uh, in business, uh, commerce, what, what they're allowed to engage in, and there is a certain amount of uh, trend, a flow of emigration from Tetuan as a result. Things improved, as I said, with the Spanish takeover of the city, which was completed in 1912, and they permitted Jews to purchase homes outside of the Mela. Um, so Tetuan always considered themselves a bit of the elite of Moroccan Jewry. They're wealthier, they prided themselves in their clean streets and nice homes and culture. The first Zionist organization in Morocco was established in Tetuan in 1900, Shivat Zion. Later on, there was even a research institute to research the poetry and literature of Spanish Jewry, and it's established in Tetuan. So it's an intellectual center of Moroccan Jewry as well. The Tetuan community maintained close commercial ties with the Jewish community in Gibraltar, such that the two communities were well, very well connected and shared much in common as far as customs and culture are concerned. And many famous people and rabbis originated from Tetuan, and we'll focus on arguably the most famous one today, Rabbi Yitzchak Ibn Walid, and uh, he's the rabbi and leader of the community for much of the 19th century. He's born in 1777, lives a very long life, um, and he studied with great diligence from a young age, despite his being orphaned from his father as a child, and it was a challenging financial situation at home. 
his mother to feed her children had to pawn her late husband's uh, svarim, his, his shas. His, he had a set of shas, and in order to feed her children, she pawned, she pawned it and, and sold it to, uh, to a pawnbroker to be able to, uh, to, to, to simply to feed her children, to keep, prevent them from starving. And this saddened the young Yitzchak, and he vowed to buy it back, which he proceeded to do at great sacrifice and with tremendous effort. And he, he went ahead and was able to, uh, as a child, this, uh, this, uh, you know, this made a big impact on him to be able to get back a shas. And he uh, studied the Torah with two of the local rabbis, which of course were called the Chachamim. Uh, that's how we refer to in Moroccan Jewry, in, in general in Sephardic Jewry, Rabbi Nachim uh, Nachon, or Nachon, uh, and Rabbi Moshe Alevi. Uh, Rabbi Nachim was the head of the local rabbinical court uh, through 1824, and his associate was Rabbi Moshe Alevi, so they were the two rabbinical leaders of the community, and many of the youth of the community started under their tutelage. Uh, so he reluctantly succeeded the latter, Ramesha Alevi, upon his passing in 1830, and uh, and he became the Rabbi Reluctantly became the rabbi. It was a whole story. He did not want to assume the mantle of leadership. Um, we'll get to that in a second. Um, unfortunately, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak's uh, wife passed away at a young age, and uh, he uh, afterwards he at some point he married his second wife, whose whose name was Simcha from the famous Bibas family, which was one of the most prominent families in Morocco, and she became she became quite a prominent and well-known um, Rebetzin. I don't know if we would refer to it as Rebetzin or Rabbanit or a Rabbi's wife, however we would refer to it in the context of Moroccan Jewry, in her own right. Um, he had a very large family, one child from his first marriage, and then ten children from his second wife. Um, so he... he he had to support this huge family, and he struggled. He lived in poverty for many years. He wrote documents for a living, which was a common uh, profession at the time, with many uh, people in the area who were either illiterate or incapable of writing in a sophisticated language. So there was people who were hired to write documents, uh, contracts and religious documents and all kinds of things like that. He also inherited a local shul, local Beit Knesset, rather, from his uh, father, um, and that brought a minimal, minimal income as well. Um, so he he um, he you know had gained the prestige as a great scholar, as both in, in halacha, is a very prominent paisik in the area, but he was also a, a mystic kabbalist, and uh, and he was which was common with many Moroccan tzaddikim at the time. They were both rabbis of towns and and paiskim of, of, of halacha, and at the same time. In, in many, you know, the Bukhatseira dynasty, uh, for instance, they were known as both great Kabbalists, and they're also rabbis of the towns that they were in. People sometimes uh, forget that. They focus on the mystical aspect and forget that they were active community leaders and rabbis of the towns in, in the most uh, conventional sense of the word at the same time. They wore more than one hat. So Ritzuk ibn Walid was the ultimate example of that, um, and similarly became known as a miracle worker, in, as a, you know, in in the mystical context of what he was, again, as many as were many Moroccan tzaddikim of of the time, he did not want to serve in the rabbinate. As I mentioned, when he heard that the leaders of the community wanted to appoint him for that position, he fled to Gibraltar. He literally left his town, left his country to to escape from being the you know to be, becoming in a position of the, in the rabbinate. That's how much he had a distaste for for uh, for the position. And what happened? They followed him to Gibraltar. The community leaders followed him there, and they and they beseeched him until he finally relented, and he uh, he becomes the rabbi, and he remains the rabbi there until his passing 
1870. So he's the rabbi there for 40 years. So he has a, a impact as a scholar there for most of the century, and then he serves in an official capacity in the rabbinate for 40 years, which is also you know, a nice amount of time, especially for the 19th century. At one point, he did visit the land of Israel, and it's unclear why he left. Uh, rumor has it that he was saddened by witnessing the constant disputes about the distribution of Chalukah funds, which was uh, quite a dominant feature of, of uh, Jewish life in the 19th century in the uh, uh, old Yishuv. So that saddens him, and he returned as a result to Morocco. So goes the rumor. There are other uh, versions of why he left. Um, but he had a tremendous love for um, the land of Israel, and he would assist with the fundraising for the old Yishuv. He would host every Shadar, every fundraiser who would come to raise funds for the community there. And Rabbi Yitzhak ibn Walid would show them tremendous respect as an emissary, emissary excuse me, from the Holy Land. Um, at one point in his life, an interesting uh, custom, he wrote his own Sefer Torah, and he invested much effort into writing it. And then when he was co- completed, he made a big celebration, and, and, uh, and he wrote, in honor of that occasion, a piyot, a poem. He wrote quite a bit of poetry in honor of the occasion, so he wrote uh, th- this special poem. Uh, he wrote poetry about various different mitzvahs. He would sing them to original melodies. He had a beautiful voice, and people would flock to hear him sing on the holidays, uh, both for the traditional prayers and his own compositions, both of the, the lyrics and the melodies themselves. Uh, he corresponded with rabbis across the Sephardic world, of course, all over Morocco, uh, with the Ibn Attar family, where the Arachayim HaKadosh comes from. So they had, it was also a prestigious rabbinic family. There were several members of the family who were rabbis at the time, and of course the Abu Chatzera family, the various in the southern Morocco, where the, they were rabbis, in uh, deep in the desert near the Algerian border, the Toledanos in Meknes and in other cities, and uh, and then beyond to Algeria, the great rabbis of the land of Israel, the great rabbis across the Ottoman Empire, and then as far away as the Beni Shchai uh, in Baghdad, Reb Chaim Palaji, he was uh, in he was in touch with everyone. He was seen as one of the senior uh, great uh, Sephardic uh, paiskim in the entire world, and at the same time, he was exceedingly modest. Um, but had strong leadership skills. He, he had a he, he led his community, um, especially on behalf of the poor and the downtrodden, in particular caring for widows and orphans of the community and protecting them, which uh, presumably was uh, influenced by his own experience as an orphan and provided a motivation to have a special concern uh, for that uh, demographic. He and, and the other rabbi, there was another member of the of the Bezdin, of the rabbinical court in uh, Tetuan, Rabbi Yitzhak Nahon, so they wrote a joint letter to Moses Montefiore for assistance at putting an end to anti-Jewish violence in Morocco. So he's intervo- involved at an international scale. Uh, there was, this was uh, following a tragic incident where there was two Jewish women who were murdered in the city and the, and the rabbis uh, were, you know, were, were doing all they could to, uh, to try to um, you know, make sure that the violence doesn't get out of control and to you know, bring, bring, bring back uh, peace and order to the Jewish community uh, under their uh, leadership. Um, he passed away on a Friday afternoon, just as Shabbos was coming in, at the age of 93. There are different dates given for his date of birth, but most sources give it as, um, as uh, 1777. So in the year 1870, at the age of 93, he passes away, an extremely old age for the time, having served for four decades at the helm of the Tetuan uh, community. His passing was mourned across the Sephardic world, 
it was Hespedim uh, delivered in Gibraltar and Yerushalayim and other places. It was even reported, interestingly enough, in, in Hamagid. Hamagid was the Hebrew newspaper in, uh, in Eastern Europe at the time. And it was not so common for Moroccan Jewish news to be published in Eastern Europe uh, in the 19th century. Hamagid, of course, was one of the first Hebrew newspapers, and they prominently reported this as one of the uh, undisputed uh, leaders of the Jewish people in the Sephardic world. So it was big news of his passing, and his gravesite in Tetuan until today is a site of pilgrimage with many visiting in honor of his Hilula, or yard site. Um, in his will, he asked for forgiveness from his community if he ever neglected to treat the community members with respect. An amazing request. And he also requests that no superlative uh, you know, praises be said about him in the eulogies or inscribed in his tombstone. The only thing he allowed to be said was that he was uh, he was hachacham hadayan. He was the wise and the, a judge uh, for the community members. And, and he didn't want anything at all to be on his tombstone. And it's interesting, I did find in the different cemeteries that I visited in Morocco, there are some cemeteries that nothing is written on any tombstones. In Meknes, for instance, I noticed that. In Fez, I noticed that there was uh, inscriptions on the tombstones there. So there seemed to have been, I didn't get a chance to, to research this aspect of it, but there seems to have been different customs among Moroccan Jewry if there should be inscriptions inscribed on uh, tombstones in general. Now, uh, his, he was so prominent that his street in the Mela, in the Jewish quarter in Tetuan, uh, is named for him. It's a Rabbi Tzchak Ibn Walid uh, street. And his house, the home where he lived, is a museum today. He was known throughout the Sephardic world as the Ner Ravi, the Western lamp, the one who, uh, who keeps uh, the Jewish people going. And he was referred to as such in letters by many of the greatest rabbis of that time period. And that appellation has gone down in history as a reference uh, to him. One of the more interesting stories of his life and career was the relationship he had with the Elians. Uh, in 1860, a group of uh, French Jews who were, um, you know, had been, the Fr- French Jewry had received emancipation and equal rights with the French Revolution in, in 1789, a gradual process, but by the turn of the century, they were pretty much emancipated. And in 1860, a group of these French Jews, who are already, by now it's the third generation, they were more secular in outlook, but with a great concern for the Jewish people, they decided to found an organization to assist Jews throughout the world who did not yet have the benefits of emancipation by investing in education, by um, lobbying their governments to, to you know, give them better treatment and better rights, and by helping them um, get better jobs and vocational training and all kinds of that, they felt like the Jewish people is, the Hebrew name of the organization is, is Kol Yisrael Chaverim. Uh, all the Jews are, you know, uh, are together, and uh, Kiach, that's how it's referred to as an acronym, and the Alliance Israelite Universelle, the the, you know, the worldwide uh, the Jewish people is actually the first organization in modern Jewish history that saw the Jewish people as one people, um, despite the fact that they were citizens of different countries, despite the fact that they were separated by by different customs and backgrounds. And it's a very important organization with pretty noble and lofty goals, even though religious Jews have an aversion to it because they were seen as a harbinger of of secularization and and and. Uh, and integration into French culture and language and customs, 
but um, the, the you know there's it's it's a bit more nuanced uh, the story, and that exactly brings us to Rabbi Tzchaki Ben Valid and his and his uh, interesting relationship with them. So in 1860, it's founded, and these are the goals of that organization. And the Alliance activities in Morocco are more than any other country in the world. There are more Alliance schools established in Morocco than all other Alliance schools worldwide combined. Um, so, so Morocco definitely had a dominant influence from this French Jewish organization. And um, he, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Ibn Valid uh, uh, agreed, as the rabbi of the community, he agreed that the first Alliance school can be established in Morocco. So the, the first one is there. The first one is established in Tetuan, in Morocco, shortly after the founding of the Alliance. And uh, he made a condition with them about the Jewish... Uh, 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 form of the education and how much and there should be Jewish studies in the curriculum and there should be Hebrew and there should be uh, religious studies and it's it's very interesting because we can always speculate that had his influence in the Alliance remained then the Alliance would go down in history with a very different story because they kept his conditions while he was still alive he 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 knew who you know he he, he imagined who he was dealing with and he saw the positive aspects of what they were bringing, and yet he felt that as the rabbi of the community, he needs to make sure that it ensures a traditional outlook as well, and keeps Jewish studies in as well, and the Hebrew language as well, not just an emphasis on French. And, um, and while he was alive, they kept it. Uh, but following his passing, uh, they reneged on the uh, agreement, and they minimized any Jewish studies, and the, uh, their focus was on science, and French, French culture, literature, vocational schools, vocational training, which again, again, wasn't all bad, and had good intentions to assist uh, uh, Jews into integrating into, into society and getting better jobs and, and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, with a, a certain element of neglect on the traditional aspect, uh, which led to uh, secularization and, and unfortunate uh, other, uh, other, other circumstances over the 19th 20th centuries. Sir um, Abiyasak so Ibn Walid himself had his children study science and language as he had nothing fundamentally against knowing these subjects. It just he felt it had to be within the proper framework with the proper hierarchy of what's important and not. Uh, so Rabitzchik had a certain amount of conflict about what the goals of the school should be, um, and uh, and uh, you know he like uh, uh, you know just just about the language itself. So the the emphasis as far as the alliance was concerned was French, uh, because of Tetuan was part of Spanish Morocco, so Spanish as well. But he wanted there should be Hebrew, so Hebrew was part of the uh, curriculum. In 1868, a girls' school was opened under the Alliance auspices as well, which was completely revolutionary at the time um, in the in anywhere in the world. 1868, um, you know, a, a Jewish girls' school uh, in in North Africa in the Muslim world, um, very revolutionary. Uh, Rabbi Yitzchak uh, Ibn Walid uh, himself presided over a yeshiva in Tetuan. In addition to his rabbinical duties, where he taught generations of students, he was a rush yeshiva, he, was, was a, again, he wore a lot of hats. Uh, the yeshiva was called Medrash Shlomo, he gave regular shiurim uh, to, to, the, to the yeshiva. Um, and uh, one time, there was, he, he informed the police about a Jewish man who had hit his wife. So he informed on the, again, it's a question that always rises today, uh, about what, what, when a Jew uh, perpetrates a crime, does do, 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 do go to the authorities or not? So he went to the police. He went to the, uh, the Muslim police, presumably, uh, about a Jewish man who had, who had hit his wife. So he needs to be arrested. 
So the uh, so the police came to arrest him based on the tip that uh, Rav Yitzchak gave them. So um, the, the, when they came to arrest him, so there was a lot of corruption in the in the police force at the time. So this fellow he bribes the police. Um, so he wasn't arrested. And that night, Rav Yitzchak cried, and he started to pray, and he and he said, you know, Hashem, justice needs to be done. And that night. Uh, sure enough, the man was arrested. The officer went a second time and decided to arrest him, uh, despite the fact that he had received the bribe earlier. And the officer then, who had accepted the bribe, the officer then approached Rav Yitzchak and gave him the bribe money. And he said, it's for charity. And he said, I'm, from now on, I'm going to assist you and the other rabbis in town to enforce the rules in the community, make sure there's law and order. Um, when, uh, when taxes got high, the tax, uh, unfortunately, they were under a crushing burden of taxes for much of the 19th century. So they were too much of a burden for the uh, Tetuan community. Many people were literally starving. So he calls a meeting. Uh, Rabbi Yitzchak calls a meeting with the leaders and the wealthy men in the town. And he told them humbly, since I am poor, I would like to tax every kilo of meat you purchase to support my household. And since he was such the beloved rabbi, they all agreed. And then as, when they gave him the tax, he gave over this tax money to the poor Jewish people in the town who were starving because he considered them his household. And if he would have asked them to give money for the poor, I don't know if they would have been so receptive. But he said, it's for my household, and he was beloved, so they did it, and they agreed to it, and that's how he was able to help the poor of the town. Um, interesting that he passed away in 1870, and yet uh, uh, years after he had passed away, during World War One was a time of great hardship for everyone in the world, of course, and uh, in Tetuan included. So, um, so there was a nightly curfew, and the streets were deserted. So there was a non-Jewish guard who stood at the entrance of the city, and he was, he was, he was, you know, his uh, guards guarding the city in order to protect the people because it was a dangerous time. So one night in the, uh, one night he's he's standing there and he sees an old white bearded Jewish man wearing traditional Moroccan Jewish clothing. So he asked them, uh, "It's dangerous." He said, "It's dangerous to be out here late at night." So the elderly man says to him, "I am Rabbi Yitzchak ibn Walid, and I'm protecting the Jewish people in case of any dangers." And the next morning, this guard went, comes to the rabbis of the town, and he says, who's this distinguished uh, elderly man who's walking around the city? And the rabbi of the town, who related this story later on, so we know that it has the very definite, very legitimate source for the story, uh, he says that, uh, he says, this person who you're describing passed away 40 years ago, and perhaps it's his merit his, is still protecting the city. And what he's most known for is his safer. Toldot uh, Yitzchak. I'm sorry. Toldot Yitzchak is Rabbi Dayan's shul in Harnof, what I mentioned earlier. The Sefer, the book that he authored, Rabbi Yitzchak Ibn Walid, is Vayomer Yitzchak. Vayomer Yitzchak. And it had a tremendous impact. It's a halachic work which covers the full gamut of halach of Shulchan Aruch and um, very important with psak from everywhere in Shulchan Aruch. Interesting that historians view this work as a social, economic, and religious history of Tetuan Jewry because it provides valuable insight into the daily lives of the community during the 19th century. It's also an invaluable source for Chakitia, the, 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 the North African dialect of Ladino that I mentioned earlier. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, because there's many texts written in this now forgotten language uh, in this uh, sefer, uh, so it's a rare resource for scholars. 
he also owned an extensive library, which in, including books from the short-lived Jewish printing press in Fez. So it's also an important piece of history. The library still exists in a private collection. And uh, his legacy continues with the Musdot Toldet Yitzchak and his name led by Reb Shlomo Dayan that I mentioned uh, earlier. Um, in the, 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 um, and that's, uh, you know, his, his, his legacy and his, what he, the books that he authored. So that's a little bit about uh, Tetuan and Reb Yitzchak Ibn Wali. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, uh, uh, sponsorships, lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.